0: Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. It's 1961 and Nazi logistician Adolf Eichmann stands trial in Jerusalem. He is charged with war crimes, accused of being the architect of the Holocaust. Eichmann is thin and balding, and looks more like a bank clerk than a mass murderer. In his defence, Eichmann argues that he never killed a single person, nor did he order an execution. He was merely a small cog and a large machine. Yet Eichmann was a gifted planner and organiser, a man who could get things done. Hunched over his spreadsheets and journals, Eichmann designed and implemented the most complex production line Europe had ever seen to transport millions of Jews and others across Europe to their fate in the death camps and gas chambers of Poland. After two months of testimony, in which over 100 Holocaust survivors shared their experiences, Eichmann was found guilty, and eventually hanged. Throughout his trial, Eichmann protested that he was a mere instrument and acted only on orders from his superiors, including Hitler himself. Despite evidence that suggested he acted willingly and proudly in support of the Nazi cause, the question remained, could such reprehensible and shocking behaviour be the result of obedience alone? And under what conditions is one capable of inflicting such cruelty? A young research psychologist at Yale University named Stanley Milgram sought to answer that question. While Eichmann served as a figurehead for the Holocaust, many hundreds or thousands more carried out heinous acts of violence and cruelty. And as the son of Jewish refugees, Milgram wanted to understand how seemingly normal people could carry out such atrocities. So he designed a series of experiments to investigate the limits of obedience. You may have heard of them. The basic experiment design went something like this. A subject is recruited under the guise that they are to participate in an experiment to understand learning. The subject is paired with another participant that they do not know, but is who, who is actually a confederate of the experimenter, and they both draw from a hat to find out who will be the teacher and who will be the learner. The drawer is rigged, however, and the subject is always the teacher. The teacher is sat in front of a machine featuring a row of thirty switches, each marked with a voltage, starting at 15 volts. The switches increase in increments until they reach 450 volts, and above sections of switches are labels like "slight shock." moderate shock, all the way up to danger, severe, and finally XXX. The confederate is seated in another room and connected to the shock machine via a wire. The teacher is told that although the shocks can be extremely painful, they cause no permanent tissue damage. The teacher is also given a sample shock of 45 volts to enhance the illusion that the shock machine is really capable of delivering electric shocks. For the experiment the teacher is to read a series of word pairs and then the learner repeats them back uh, and matches a word if the learner makes a mistake the teacher is to deliver a shock beginning at 15 volts then increasing one level for every additional mistake the experimenter observes the teacher and encourages the teacher to continue delivering shocks even if he protests or seems reluctant to continue he will use only four phrases of an increasing compulsion from please go on to It is absolutely essential that you continue. And finally, you have no other choice. You must go on. The learner makes predetermined mistakes and gives responses of increasing distress until 300 volts is delivered. Then the learner cries out in pain and pounds on the wall. Invariably, the teacher seeks guidance from the experimenter and may either discontinue the experiment or keep going under their persistent encouragement. The learner will complain of a heart condition and cry out more with each shock until finally going silent. The experimenter advises the teacher that no response is a wrong answer and to please go on. So I'll quickly recap for you. You have a fake electric shock machine and a confederate who's the learner is pretending to be shocked in another room. Now the subject, who's the teacher, thinks it is real and is administering the shocks and when he begins to worry that he might be causing significant harm to the learner He asked the experimenter for guidance and is told he must continue. So what would you do in this situation? Before conducting the experiment, Milgram asked dozens of psychiatrists and students on the Yale campus what they thought might happen, and virtually all of them thought the subjects would discontinue the experiment when the victim became distressed. And you might think the same. Intuitively, it does sound like the right thing to do. But here is the surprising and perhaps shocking part. All 40 subjects in this experiment delivered shocks of up to 300 volts until the learner kicked the wall and then went quiet. And from here, with 10 shock levels still to go to reach 450 volts, 14 withdrew at various other points, but 26 continued all the way to the end, delivering 450 volts, despite the learner going silent at just 300 volts. Defying all predictions, more than half of the participants would have delivered lethal electric shocks simply because a man in a white coat told them to continue. But many did not do so willingly. In fact, they protested in numerous ways. Some pleaded with the experimenter to let them stop, but he continued as literally unchanged, and that alone was enough for them to continue. And to Milgren's surprise, a large number would laugh, some uncontrollably, as they delivered the ever-increasing shocks. Others were tormented, suffering from extreme dissonance between their own conscience and the social need to obey the experimenter. I'll play now a brief excerpt from one of these experiments. It's about two minutes long, and here we hear the subject protesting, the experimenter encouraging him to go on, and the cries of the victim in the other room. The whole video can be found on YouTube, and there is a link in the show notes. Axe, needle, stick, blade. As quick. Wrong. I'm the, the, the Please continue, teacher. Neely, going I got a shot, 180 volts. Ow. I can't stand the pain. Let I can't stand it. I'm not going to kill that man. You? you hear him hollering? Hey, I said before, the shocks may be painful, but I'm yeah, not holler. He can't stand it. What if something happens to him? The experiment requires that you continue teaching. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get that man sick of that. I mean, he's hollering in mm. there. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean <laughs> he's well, whether the learner likes it or not, we must go on until well, he's learned I mean, all the words. Uh, I refuse to take the responsibility and get hurt in there. I'm not. I mean, he's under hollering. It's absolutely essential that you continue, teacher. Continue, but. All right, next one. Slow. Wrong. Answer his neck. Three hundred volts. <laughs> absolutely refuse to answer anymore. Get me out of here. You can't hold me here. Get me out. Get me out of here. Continue the next word is green, please. Green. Grass hat ink apple. The results of the Milgram experiments were shocking and caused an outcry among psychology circles, which continues even today. Many criticized the ethics of the experiment, as Milgram led the subjects unwittingly into a situation of psychological distress, which could have resulted in shame, embarrassment, loss of self esteem and distress. One of the core tenets of ethics and psychology, and indeed all medical professions, is to do no harm. We have no difficulty condemning the actions of the notorious Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele, the angel of death, who performed horrific human experiments at Auschwitz. But real life is often not so black and white, particularly when it comes to understanding human behaviour. For a psychologist to learn how people behave under differing conditions of stress may offer value for reducing stress or improving performance in other settings, which can benefit many. So perhaps a blanket ban on all forms of stress-inducing research is going too far, but how do we determine what limits are acceptable? This question is the mandate of ethics committees, and a variety of guidelines exist which frame the key considerations, and one of these is a requirement to ensure informed consent is obtained. Informed consent simply means to inform a potential participant in a research study that they may be deceived, or that all may not be as it seems, or other similar statements which makes it clear that there is the potential for circumstances or situations within the experiment which create stress or discomfort. The issue with Milgram's experiments is that this consent was never obtained, the deception was hidden until the very end when the victim emerged unscathed and assured the subject that he was fine. Milgram noted that in all cases, stress in the subjects resolved quickly, and they were relieved and happy to have been a part of what they considered important research. A psychiatrist was even engaged to follow up with those subjects deemed most affected during the experiment, and he was satisfied that none suffered from any lingering stress or negative consequences. But this all seems like an afterthought. Just because no one came through the worst for wear doesn't justify the ethics or make them sound. It's as if the ethics of the experiment were based on a hindsight bias where, in reality, Milgram had no way of knowing whether he was causing lasting harm to his subjects. And based on his own intuitions and those of the many who were surveyed before the experiments, he was not expecting so many subjects to comply. He was in uncharted territory and made a conscious decision to proceed with his experiment series even after observing these surprising and disturbing reactions in many subjects. Now, we might think the experiment I've described was relatively small and garnered interesting and powerful insight into human behaviour, which may, as Milgram hoped, help to explain how atrocities such as those inflicted by the Nazis were carried out. But this single experiment of 40 subjects was just the tip of the iceberg. Milgram, in fact, carried out many variations of his experiment and found a variety of different results. In total, nearly 1,000 people were unwitting participants in Milgram's study of obedience. In the first experiment, Milgram conducted a pilot study, or what is known as a pretest, to better understand the method of his experiment. It's like a fine-tuning process. He did this to test the general format of the experiment, with a Confederate actor in another room behind opaque glass, just barely visible to the subject. And in this early version, the learner offered no verbal feedback whatsoever. In this design, each subject continued delivering shocks right up until the limit, with virtually no resistance. Milgram was surprised and began to realize at this early stage that perhaps his experiments were going to reveal something entirely different from what his intuitions would have suggested. So he introduced a range of verbal responses for the learner to say as the levels of shock increased, but even these did not elicit resistance from the subjects. Here, Milgram explains how he adapted the experiment design to try to identify where subjects would begin to have difficulty in administering the shocks. At first, no vocal feedback was used from the victim. It was thought that the verbal and voltage designations on the control panel would create sufficient pressure to curtail the subject's obedience. However, this was not the case. In the absence of protest from the learner, virtually all subjects once commanded went blithely to the end of the board, seemingly indifferent to the verbal designations of extreme shock and danger, severe shock. This deprived us of an adequate basis for scaling obedient tendencies. A force had to be introduced that would strengthen the subject's resistance to the experimenter's commands and reveal individual differences in terms of a distribution of break-off points. This force took the form of protest from the victim. Initially, mild protests were used, but proved inadequate. Subsequently, more vehement protests were inserted into the experimental procedure. To our consternation, even the strongest protests from the victim did not prevent all subjects from administering the harshest punishment ordered by the experimenter but the protests did lower the mean maximum shock somewhat and created some spread in the subject's performance. Therefore, the victim's cries were standardised on tape and incorporated into the regular experimental procedure. This situation did more than highlight the technical difficulties of finding a workable experimental procedure. It indicated that subjects would obey authority to a greater extent than we had supposed. Now Milgram also noticed that as subjects delivered increasingly powerful shocks and the cries of the learner became louder and more distressed, the subject would conspicuously avert his eyes but continue to follow the procedure. Milgram reasoned that the subject did not want to observe the results of the shocks, but this was still not enough for many of them to stop. He explored this further by adjusting the proximity of the subject to the learner, what he described as bringing the victim psychologically closer. He began with the subject in another room, as I described earlier, but with only a bang on the wall when the shock hit 300 volts. Then he added the verbal protests, but with the learner still unseen. In the third version, the lunar was placed in the same room as the subject, so he could see and hear the lunar's protests and distress right in front of him. And in the final version, the learner would receive the shock by resting his hand on a shock plate, and after reaching 150 volts, the learner would refuse to place his hand on the shock plate for further shocks, so the experimenter instructed the subject to place the learner's hand on the plate, thus forcing the subject to have physical contact with the learner. And not surprisingly, compliance in this mode reduced as proximity decreased. But even so, 30% of subjects continued to the end, even when required to physically place the victim's hand on the shock plate. Have a think about how this translates to our behaviour in everyday life. We are generally nice to each other in person, we are respectful and polite, for the most part, but as soon as we remove proximity, our behaviour changes. It is far easier to talk behind someone's back than it is to their face. Social media is perhaps the perfect example. An element of anonymity is introduced, and people behave in abhorrent and despicable ways to each other in an online environment. Would they make such comments if they were face-to-face with that person? Every day we see online bullying. Milgram simply changed the conditions to demonstrate what we already know. And it is scary. If we can't see each other or hear each other, if we don't really know each other, we can inflict horrific harm on each other without thinking too hard about it. Just because someone tells us to. Milgram's experiments may have been ethically questionable, but as he argued, is it really the ethics we find confronting, or is it the results? Milgram also introduced another experimental condition. He moved the proximity of the experimenter. In some cases, he would be in the room, wearing his white coat and looking professorial. In other cases, he would leave the room altogether. And again, not surprisingly, the level of obedience varied with the proximity of the experimenter. We are most obedient when the instructions are issued by an authority figure in close proximity, and we are detached from their results. Quite simply, we do not take personal responsibility for our actions. We are merely the means to an end. The cog in the machine, as Eichmann put it. It might sound obvious, as it so often does in social and behavioural psychology, but is it really? In Western culture, we pride ourselves on our autonomy and our sense of agency. We are free in so many ways. Free to say what we want, to act how we want, and to be who we want. We don't take no shit from no one. We think critically and rationally and behave according to what we think is right. We certainly aren't sheep who follow the masses and respond thoughtlessly to the commands of our leaders. Right? Well, Milgram demonstrated that that is not the case at all. We very quickly and willingly give up our sense of agency and personal responsibility if we think it is what is expected. Have a look around. We have a boss. We have figureheads and celebrities and politicians and people we look up to. They tell us how to think, however implicitly, who to be, how to behave, what language to use, how to dress, what to watch, what to listen to, how to treat each other and what to buy. We may feel like we have a sense of autonomy and agency, but really, we are easily manipulated by social constructs that inform our behavior and even the most trivial of circumstances. Marketing gurus know this well. Although these tricks and manipulations are not new, perhaps more so now than ever, we are at our most vulnerable as we are exposed for many hours a day to messages that tell us who and what we should be. While we aren't being instructed to deliver lethal shocks, we can easily form a herd and exclude those who don't conform and adopt the trinkets and symbols that signify our allegiances. Milgram isn't the only one who studied obedience in this context, though. In 1966, American psychiatrist Charles Hofling conducted a study of nurse obedience to doctors in a hospital setting. The experiment went something like this. A person would telephone the nurse's station on a hospital ward claiming to be a doctor, He would ask the nurse to administer 20 milligrams of a drug named astrotin to a specific patient and that he would provide the required signature later on. As it happens, there is no such drug, but a dummy bottle had been placed in the ward medicine cabinet. The experiment was conducted on 22 separate nurses, and 21 of them would have carried out the instruction. This may not sound surprising. Surely nurses are trained to follow doctor's orders. But there are specific protocols, and in this case, it was a requirement that the nurse knew the doctor prescribing the drug and that appropriate paperwork be signed indicating the list of drugs to be used on a ward on a given day, and each individual drug required specific paperwork authorizing its use. But further to this, the drug bottle had a specific warning stating that the maximum daily dose was only 10 milligrams. Clearly, obedience to authority is a complex and fraught issue, but is also a fundamental characteristic of human nature. But that is still not the end of the matter. Experiments continue to be conducted to understand human obedience under different conditions. A recent study conducted in 2016 by a group of scientists at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London replicated some aspects of Milgram's experiment, but this time they used actual electric shocks. Well, the voltage was relatively mild, but still painful. The key difference was that both the giver and the receiver of the shocks were subjects, and they swapped over after a series of trials. They also used a coercion condition, where the experimenter instructed the subject to deliver the shock, and a free choice condition, where the subject could choose whether to deliver a shock or not. The experimenters also connected the subjects to an electroencephalography machine, or EEG, which records brain activity. There's a little more to the experiment, but essentially, they determined that when subjects act passively, that is, when they're coerced, into carrying out an action, they show less brain activity. This was interpreted as having less agency or control of the outcome of their action. And this was an interesting finding, because it tells us just what we expect. When these subjects are asked to report on how they felt when following instructions, they said, as we all would, that they felt less responsible for their actions when acting obediently. But we typically say that when we think it's the right answer and maybe what others want to hear. We expect people to feel that they had less control. What this experiment proved was that brain activity shows they actually did have less control over their actions when they were being coerced. Oh, and one other thing. When the subject swapped over, the one who received the shocks first tended to deliver a similar number of shocks back. This type of vindictive revenge behaviour has been studied before, where people tend to favour physical punishment if they perceive unfairness. So what are the implications of this finding? Well, society attributes responsibility to individuals for their actions. It's very difficult to argue that one is not responsible because they were acting on orders. We want to hold people to account, and if you are caught red-handed, then how can anyone else possibly be a responsibility for something you did? But these findings tell us that we do feel a diminished sense of agency when we are acting according to the directive of another. The researchers of this study have the following to say, There are many situations where people obey orders. In fact, society sometimes requires people to obey an order to do something unpleasant. Think of a soldier who is ordered to shoot at an enemy in the legitimate defence of his country. Maybe people can be trained to feel more responsible. That might allow them to resist orders that are inappropriate. Also, if people who follow orders feel a reduced sense of responsibility for their actions, then perhaps people who give orders should feel increased responsibility. For example, in some forms of government, a minister is held responsible for the actions of the civil servants working in their department. Society needs to carefully manage this kind of distribution of responsibility. Right now, at this moment in time, we're in some kind of alternate reality, but our social instincts are primed as much as they've ever been. These types of social psychology experiments are instructive as they tell us more about who we really are. Is it really so surprising that we haul toilet paper or panic by or behave in seemingly unusual ways when confronted by unusual and threatening circumstances? When our intuitions over something as apparently obvious as whether we would inflict harm on a stranger for no good reason are turned on their head, everything that is not so black and white also turns with it. And if there's one thing to take away from this knowledge, it is that we must be ever mindful of our actions and of our instincts. We cannot simply take for granted that we will always act with good intentions because it doesn't take much for us to set aside our values and sense of right and wrong. Now, more than ever, we can't rely on our intuitions, we must rely on our ability to reason and transcend those instincts through mindful thought. You are responsible for how you behave and for your actions, but you are easily manipulated. So act wisely. Oh, one more thing. When you're writing something on social media, ask yourself, would you say that to that person if you were sharing an elevator with them? If the answer is no, then don't be a dick. Just delete it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes and be sure to give us a rating at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or at the email, email now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.